Welcome to What's Working in Marketing, a podcast for marketers that uncovers what's working across the digital landscape by tapping into the world's best data-backed research and through candid conversations with industry experts. I'm your host, Charlie Grinnell. On this episode, I'm joined with Brittany Hall, Vice President of Marketing at Earth's Own Food Company. Thanks for joining me today, Brittany. I'm excited to be here. Likewise, likewise. Um, you know, you and I talked before this episode about about the topic that we're covering today, and and you know, as we were kind of going back and forth, I just instantly thought, oh my gosh, I need to have her on the podcast. There, <laughs> like, there are things that you were finishing my sentences, and I was just like, oh, there's so much value here. So. I think, you know, what we, what we, before, how we typically start these, these episodes is I want to kind of dive in and, and learn more about your journey to date. I want to go back to the beginning. And so can you just kind of start with like, how did you get into marketing and kind of how has that evolved into your role today at EarthZone? Yeah, well, actually I, I was going to be a hotelier. I was going to, working in hotels, so I'm a very, very glamorous. <laughs> uh, newsflash, it's not. It's uh, a lot of early mornings and late nights and low pay. So it was, <laughs> it's a terrible career path. Uh, but luckily, my specialization in hospitality came on the back of a business degree, uh, which is amazing uh, and terrifying all at the same time, because unlike when you come out with a teaching degree, you know exactly what you're going to be. And I just didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I kind of did a couple of things. One, I talked to anybody who would talk to me about what they did, if they had any semblance of being in business, just to get an idea of what was out there. And then... The other thing I did is back in the day, things like strategy online, they used to actually be print publications. They used to actually go and buy them at the store. Yeah. And there used to be job postings in the back. Okay. So <laughs> this is like 2000, around 2000. Okay. So what I did is I went and I pulled out all these job postings and pulled up the lines of the jobs that I, the, the things that I wanted to do. And I basically built my own job description. And then I also built one of all the things I didn't want to do. And then that's smart. That's super smart. And then I went to a recruiter and I was like, like, what's this job? Cause this is the job I want. So can you help me find this? And as part of this journey, I was put in touch with, um, through my dad, actually, someone who was, she was a, a brand manager at Parker and Gamble. Okay. Out in Toronto on bounty towels. And so she was telling me about what she did and I was like, wow, this brand management thing sounds amazing. I want to do this. So it really started me on a path. But when I started talking to recruiters, they were like, listen, if you don't go to the big three schools, which is like Western Queens or U of T, mm-hmm. don't even bother. No packaged goods firm is even going to talk to you. Just like a moonshot. Interesting. And here I was, this girl from the University of Victoria, and they're like, like you, got, you, got, you got nothing. <laughs> so I was like, well, how am I going to let that stop me? And so I went and I, uh, I made a list. And back in 2000, there was a lot more packaged goods firms. I was living in Toronto at the time. Mm-hmm. There was a lot more packaged goods firms than there is today. Because they today they've, they've consolidated. Mm-hmm. So like Kraft and Heinz were separate. Cadbury yeah. and Kraft were separate. Um, Quaker and Pepsi weren't together yet. So there was about 30 different companies that were based out there. Yeah. And so I made a list of all of these companies and all of the HR managers that actually work there and their phone numbers. What? And... <laughs> This is like pre-LinkedIn days. You just get this after. I love no this. No, there wasn't like, it wasn't really even email for the most Crazy. Part. And so on a three-week rotation, I would call them and be like, hey, remember me? I'm here. Any jobs? 
And so you get to know them all through this process. And I actually got quite a bit of interviews, but you know how they have those lists of like what not to do in interviews? I did all of those things that you're not supposed to do. I learned so much and did so much wrong. But eventually I ended up, um, my first job was um, as an assistant brand manager at Heinz, working on Alpha Getty. And the first day I got in there, I was like, oh my God, I'm home. This is my place. These are my people. And I haven't lost that feeling in 20 years. It's been an amazing journey. So I spent a few years at Heinz uh, on a couple different portfolios. I worked on baby food. I worked on baked beans, canned pasta. And the thing about Heinz that I just loved is they are like a general management package goods firm, which means firmly focused on running the business, running the P&L. So all of the fundamentals that you're supposed to learn in your first job when you start out, I learned there. And I learned That's awesome. from really brilliant people that just taught me, um, yeah, just the basics. Mm-hmm. So I spent a few years there. Um, from there, I went to Ocean Spray, spent a couple of years there. Uh, and then I went to Kellogg's, uh, a couple more years at Kellogg's. And that was an amazing organization. Very different than where I started at Heinz, or where mm-hmm. we talked about this sort of general management. Um, Kellogg's is all about a, a branding machine. So that is what they are all about. And I learned yeah. a ton just about um, the value of branding mm-hmm. and how to set yourself apart and what that means. And then really connecting with a consumer. And that mm-hmm. was also where that idea of you've got to connect with the consumer and a consumer insight. And they spent a ton of money on research. There was just, it was so much great learning out of that one. Uh, and then from there, I went to Canada Dry and I spent a couple of years on Canada Dry. I mean, you're I'm a brand manager running a hundred million dollar portfolio. And it was just like incredible. Yeah. The neat part of that is we did this big restage where we looked at the positioning and the innovation pipeline and um, redesigned the packaging. And because the business was bigger in Canada than the U.S., it was actually a North American exercise that got led out of Canada, which never happened. That's rare. It's really rare. Yeah. So that was an incredible opportunity. And then I had been in Toronto for about 10 years and I realized kind of was like missing home. And I was, had met my husband in Toronto and it was sort of time to start a family and, and come back to Vancouver. So that's when I came back. And then the thing I found that was really interesting about Vancouver versus Toronto is in Toronto, you get career progression by working through different companies. Yeah. So same stream, work your way through different companies. In Vancouver, it's all about different industries. And mm-hmm. mostly because there just isn't the same breadth of companies within a certain vector. So totally, I did a number of different things. I worked in liquor. Um, I launched tolling for the government out here. Crazy. I uh, launched and uh, built a brand team from the ground up um, at Vega, which is a plant-based protein company. And then my old boss at Mark Anthony, which is the first job I got in Vancouver, was who was at Gerson. It's like, hey, can you? when I come over and join. So that's how I ended up here. Wow. What a journey. I feel like there, like there, there's so much there. I just like the thing that sticks out to me. Are you a foodie outside of work? I, I do. I know I have two kids. So that really kind of high boshes a lot of the, the fun foodie things that I get to do, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Cause I'm like, Oh, it's interesting. Like you, you've touched, it sounds like every area of food and food and beverage, so to speak, whether it's, it's booze or packaged goods or whatever. And that's, I don't know. I feel like that's very, very unique over such a long period of time. Cause you know, to your point, like I often see 
people in my network kind of jumping around from thing to thing, industry to industry. So, huh, super, super interesting. I want to kind of dive into to the, the topic at hand here, innovation, this word innovation. I feel like this, this word is, it's such a buzzword in marketing, at least from my perspective. Um, you know, I think it's one of those things that we've seen in business that is, is necessary, especially on the product side of things. But, you know, there kind of have been contrarian points of view or, or opposing points of view where that this idea in the business community that, that innovation is overhyped. Um, and it's kind of led to this mentality of, of innovation for the sake of innovation. How do you see innovation fitting into just marketing as a whole? Well, I mean, it is necessary, but I think the thing that we need to keep in mind is everything we do in marketing has got to be rooted in consumer insight. And if it's not rooted in something that a consumer actually wants, you're wasting your time by working on it. I always go back to the amount of time and effort it takes to launch something is the same, regardless of it's a massive success or a huge flop. So you got to spend your time on the right thing. Yeah. Uh, the other piece of it is there's an opportunity cost to working on innovation because when you're working on that, you're not working on your base business. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be able to balance out innovation as part of the overall mix. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, again, addressing a, a real consumer need, then it's not worth you spending your time on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that reminds me of... of going back to that thing of innovation for the, for the sake of innovation, I felt like it's, I I've seen it used as almost like a crutch in the past or like this kind of like shiny object syndrome, like kind of like the word, like an e-commerce, like new or sale. It's just like a word that like, we're like, it's innovation box check. And like, we kind of go on from there. Um, do you think there's kind of like a, a sweet spot or like a Goldilocks zone where innovation kind of fits into marketing or, or, or brand strategy? Yeah. And you do need it. And that's, so first thing I'll say is you have to have a solid base. If your brand base isn't solid, there's no point in layering innovation on. Yeah. Uh, the bright shiny syndrome thing, it's real. Uh, it does actually serve a bit of a purpose yeah. because every time you, you need to bring new news to the category, there is also a product life cycle where as new products, you launch them, other ones are coming down. So you need to try and keep your volume solid by having that balance of mature and new products. Uh, new news also helps to, you know, signal to a consumer that to relook at your brand. Yeah. But there's no point in bringing them back to your brand if the rest of your portfolio actually doesn't stack up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and same thing with retailers; it gives you a, a reason to go and talk to retailers about the rest of the portfolio. So it definitely serves a purpose. But again, the thing is, when you have um, new innovation, you got to go find consumers to buy it. So it's yeah. either you're stealing from your existing, which doesn't make you any more money or you have to go out and spend a lot of money to tell people all about it mm-hmm. versus you actually have an existing base of consumers already buying your current product. And if you can just spend even the same, you you often will get a better return by nurturing what you've already got rather than trying to go get net new. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like the, the age old saying of like, it's easier to, it's better to retain an existing customer than go get a net new customer because of that cost. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And I think like, you know, if you were going to kind of break down, this is kind of a follow up to that. If you were going to break down, you know, how innovation kind of fits as like one of the core components around a marketing strategy, what has been like the process in order to identify those like different core components? Yeah. So I'll start by saying I'm, I'm a really logical marketer. I'm not like a flashy, (laughs) I, I logic things out. So when I look at anything, and it can be innovation, it can be anything, but you start with your core consumer, your insight. Mm 
you figure out and you get to know your consumer really well. So if there's anywhere to start, spend all of your time really understanding who it is buying your product and then figure out how do you position what you've got or your product to fit that need. And then you break it out and then you build your innovation, your content pillars that address the positioning that address the insight. So I just, you layer it down mm-hmm. to the point and then you end up with a, a mix. And that's the key part too, is you have to have it as part of a mix. It's not mm-hmm. one piece of many. And then how do you bring it all back together? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think the, the layer thing is something that resonates with me when when I've built strategies in the past or, or when we get asked about strategy or right metric, this idea of, um, you know, causal or contextual linkage and, and how stuff fits together. And yeah, that logic, I feel like what you just said there is something that like so many marketers just need to remember in general. Like, hey, we're not, we're not, it isn't this like crazy advanced math equation that we're doing here. It's like, how can we put this together and build this in a way that structurally makes sense that top to bottom are, are linked together in a way where you can do things at a tactical level that point up to where you're trying to go as a business or, or what you're trying to do as a business. Yeah, I think that's it. And I think the other thing that people sometimes miss too is that there are those logical steps that don't go straight from, you know, product and tactic Mm -hmm. that you actually have to like layer it down. It's not rocket science. And that's the thing about marketing is it's really logical. You just got to sort of think it through. And I think we can get caught up in the bright, cool, new things. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, is marketing at its core hasn't really change you get new channels and you get new way of doing things but the the logic still applies your consumer at the the core know what they want and then figure out what products you can make to deliver on them and then Mm. you just talk about those things in a way that actually resonates yeah yeah it's funny you say that i think about the, the this kind of framework in my mind where if you have like objective strategy tactics and then say measurement right like if those are kind of those four areas how if you build that properly, like let's say you take that framework and you apply it to your business and you build that properly, it almost actually narrows down the choices out there in this kind of like shiny object syndrome. Because when you get really clear on objectives, that those objectives are going to help steer you towards the strategies, which are going to help steer you towards the tactics, which then is going to steer you towards how you measure it. And like having all those things linked, it becomes this really crowded thing, but then all of, a bunch of options just automatically cancel themselves out because it's just not relevant to what you're trying to do. Yeah. And the other thing I, I, I put a lot of stock into is really understanding your North Star. So what is yep. it as a brand that you stand for? Mm-hmm. And be really, really clear on that. Mm-hmm. Because then you also don't get mixed up with all these kinds of things that you could do, but actually don't make sense because they yeah. don't deliver on what your North Star is all about. Yeah, that's actually, that brings me a, fo- a follow-up question, actually. I was talking to... Um, a company that had me in for a lunch and learn. And one of the things I kind of talked through that framework of objective strategy, tactic measurement. And a question that I got was, what if your objectives aren't very clear? And that was like a really interesting question for me. They're like, you know, you as a marketer who sat in a marketing seat, what do you do when you're not getting the the type of objectives or, or clear objectives for you to execute against? And that was like, I, I kind of was like, you got to push like, you know, and they're, if they're the ones, you know, if the C-suite is steering the ship and having that North star, it's super, super critical. But like as a marketer, without those clear objectives, it's kind of hard for you to activate against that. What do you think about that? I think at the end of the day, you have to be really clear on who you're, cons- I feel like I'm talking like a broken record, but <laughs> be really clear on your consumer. And then your objectives really deliver on your strategy and your strategy delivers on what your consumer needs. Mm-hmm. So 
it's, if your objectives aren't clear, then you're not doing a good job of defining them. <laughs> you got to figure that stuff out. I agree. I think it's one of those things where like, even just like setting objectives in a way is, is a tough thing for marketers to, to figure out. Right. It, but it does go back to that point of customer insights or industry insights or whatever. Like there's a level of insight that informs all that stuff. And so, yeah. you know, I think, you know, you saying, Oh, I feel like I sound like a broken record. I think to me that just highlights the importance of it. You know, what you can, you know, you can, you can talk about it in whichever way it wants. It all comes back to that. Like as marketers, what are we trying to do? We're trying to understand how people behave and figure out a way to put our brand in front of them in a tasteful way that can hopefully get them to take an action that we want a business outcome from. And so, yeah, you need to kind of look before you leap, I guess. Yeah. I always find also the interesting thing is it can apply to things you actually don't know that well. And I'll use an example. As you can tell, I, I grew up in marketing before digital was a thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm reaching my 20th year being a brand marketer. And I remember the time when people were like, Oh my God, should we actually invest in this online digital advertising? <laughs> Is it really going to go anywhere? Anyway, I digress. Yeah. Um, but we, so we brought uh, digital in-house at our zone about a year and a half ago. And we had to come up with a digital strategy. And because I'm not naturally a digital marketer, you kind of had to just logic it through. So yep. it goes back to what's the business strategy? Okay, well, what's a digital strategy that addresses the business strategy? How do we um, break the, the digital strategy into like core components of like content that address it? And then, then your tactics all come out. But it just by waterfalling it down, it makes it much easier to figure out what content buckets you play with. And I think what I've, I've found with a lot of digital agencies is they go straight to pretty pictures and captions. Yeah. And that whole upfront piece where you're actually trying to logic out how the strategy ties back to your business strategy and how your core content buckets actually link up is missing. Totally. And you don't have to know about digital just to be able to logic out how that can play out. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think that like go going into the why, like, yeah, anybody can spin up a campaign that looks great. Why are we doing this? What does this actually do for us as a business? And it goes back to like uh, a quote that a uh, paraphrasing a quote from a, a buddy of mine who I used to work with back in the day at Red Bull. He, he coined marketing is art for the sake of commerce, commerce being the keyword. And so like, to your point, like this thing of like, oh, this is like a pretty picture. Our Instagram feed looks good. Or this, this brand video is cool. Why? What are we doing here? What is the purpose? If you want to go make pretty pictures, the art gallery is just down the way, like go for it. But like, this is a business function that has to support a business. I don't know. I, I'm very bold 100%. and sitting on that side of the fence and that might piss off some creative people who might listen to this, yeah. but. There's a reason that they pay us to do our job, to be fair. We don't bring in sales. We don't actually sell anything. I don't have a job. <laughs> Facts, absolute <laughs> facts, like hard hitting facts. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. Um, I want to, I want to kind of continue on. You were, you were talking about consumer insights. You were talking about understanding your North star. You obviously do some work looking at competitors. Like how do you stay up to date with that? And how does that kind of fit into as you approach building out strategy, right? Like you obviously have a good idea of, of where your brand has come from, where your North star is trying to go talking to your customers. How do you kind of use like market intelligence to, to shape your strategy? It's a really good question because I, I think we've all been victim in the past and a lot of brands keep looking to their competitors to figure out where their strategy is. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And we learned a few years ago that it was better for us to be firmly focused on the consumer and the consumer insight and be aware of what the competitors are doing just so that we're not blindsided, but mm-hmm. it's almost irrelevant because they can do what they, are, they they do. And we will continue to focus on delivering against a core consumer need in a way that is relevant and engaging. And so by focusing on our North Star, it doesn't matter what our competitors do. Mm-hmm. They can, and we've also been able to cultivate a tone and a personality and a, a way and a purpose that whatever they do, it doesn't affect that. Mm-hmm. We just keep doing our thing and making sure, making sure that the consumer is like firmly in our focus. And then mm-hmm. it's really hard to go off the rails. Yeah. Because so often you end up getting distracted by what a competitor is doing and you react mm-hmm. and you keep your, you take your eye off the ball. Yeah. And that I've seen that happen over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. When we stopped doing that in Urso, and we did it for years, we kept watching the competitors. When we stopped doing that, we actually started to win in the market because we ended up following our own path and the path that was laid out by what consumers want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. I want to switch gears here again. Like you, you've kind of talked a lot about your background, the brands that that you've you've worked with. What brands do you look at today for inspiration? Like if you're kind of like you know, take almost like it with your marketing hat and maybe your non-marketing hat, you're like, oh my gosh, like that brand can do no wrong. I'll give an example. Apple can literally do no wrong for me. They could release cardboard and I'm like, here's, here, take my money, have it. Like, who is that? Who is that brand for you and why? Uh, I think there's a ton of brands that are doing some really awesome things and inspiration totally comes from everywhere. I love how uh, Smart Sweets, um, they took an insight around this vilification of sugar Mm-hmm. And then really made it permissible to love candy again. Yeah. Uh, I love Away. Do you know Away? Yep. Luggage. Yeah, luggage. Yeah. So they took something that is typically product shots, like really traditional luggage shots. And then they pivoted to, to really concentrate in content and what you can actually do with their product rather than just focus on, hey, buy our product. Yeah. Uh, Glossier is another one that I love yeah. uh, where they really started with the consumer and they continue to keep the consumer at its core mm-hmm. and then they create products in response to what those consumers need. Yeah. There's a, I mean, there is a ton, there's a ton of brands yeah. that are doing it well. And I think you and I talked about this when we first started talking is ideas can come from anywhere. Yeah. And it's not even about needing to be first. Totally. It's about being able to take inspiration and pull things that are just like, there's tons of great ideas. And how do you pull one great idea for uh, that these guys are doing and one great idea that these guys are doing? And then you make it your own. Mm-hmm. And again, because everybody's got a different brand and different position and a different way of speaking, you can take it in-house and you make it your own regardless. Good yeah. ideas can come from absolutely anywhere. Yeah. Well, I feel like almost that kind of like curation becomes innovation, right? Like Wait it's taking like those that. little pieces and being yeah. like, yeah, we're cur- curating this. And these components put together become this innovation in the eyes of the consumer. And then you're kind of kicking back being like, they're like, wow, this is amazing. Look at this new thing. And you're kind of like, oh, well, it's actually this. It's a bit of this. And I think about it almost in like music production with sampling, right? Like how artists will sample tracks to make beats for hip hop or whatever. They're pulling inspiration from all over and then putting it together into this, into this new thing. I it's, think you also need to be humble and realize that you don't know all the answers. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? And I think, I mean, I suffered from that where you, you're coming up and you think you should, but you really don't. You just make your best guess based on everything you've known to date 
Mm-hmm. And what you see and you try things. Also, what I love about digital is the test and learn with digital is so much quicker and faster. And you're able to measure way better than you ever used to be able to with other media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think about the like with digital, it's almost um, you can kind of use it as like an optometrist. Like you put something out there and is it like better or worse? Like as they put the lens in front, like doing that with your audience or doing that with your customer base, you know, you do get that feedback much quicker. You just kind of spark something in my mind. Well, two things. One, I kind of want to go back to like the brand thing. When you brought up Away, the one that came to mind for me was actually Yeti coolers, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like same type of thing. They took a pro- like a cooler is not a sexy product. Neither is a piece of luggage to your point, but, but you kind of hit the nail on the head. It's like, what does that product, what type of lifestyle does that product enable? What does that allow you to go do? So that was one that I was like, oh yeah, I never thought of a way in that way. I always kind of use Yeti as the example that came to mind for me. So that's really interesting. But I, I want to talk about this kind of thing about testing, testing and learning. I want to talk about, has there ever been a point where like in your previous career, when you look back at campaigns and like, I have epic failures that I'm happy to talk about, like, as, as we go on, is there something where you like, you're kind of like, ah, oh, we, we did this, this was the information we had at hand. And maybe you lean too hard into innovation or into something else. And you're like, whoa, that did not go how we thought it was going to go. Oh my gosh. It happens all the time. <laughs> I think that just comes with the territory. Yeah. I also, I mean, I am a big believer in uh, risking. And if you you don't risk, you can't win. And totally. failure comes along with that. And I mean, to be fair, risk all the time and does not always work out. <laughs> I've, I mean, I've launched probably, to be fair, hundreds of products over my career. Whoa. So I, a lot of things. Yeah. Most of them aren't out there anymore. Yeah. So I think that that's the... When you go back to um, the topic around innovation, I've also gone through a number of repositionings, and most of that work still exists. Yeah. So, I would say, yeah, you always base your decisions on the information you have at hand. I've, mm-hmm. I've heard it well described as sort of between um, forty and sixty percent. Anything less than forty percent of information, you don't have enough. Anything above sixty, you're waiting too long. Yeah. So. How do you take what you know and you just, and you pivot and you get flexible and you learn and you fail and you learn again. I don't know if I can actually, I mean, there's just, there's a ton of things that I could say that I've launched and failed or campaigns we've run and didn't work. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I don't focus necessarily on all the things that didn't work. I probably focus more on the things I learned by going through those experiences. Yeah. And I guess it comes with the territory, right? To your point, like, Marketing is not a perfect art or a perfect science, right? Like there's never going to be like check mark. This is exactly how you do. Like this is a math formula and X equals 10. And here you go. Like, it's never going to be like that. So yeah, I, I, I'm always interested to hear like, man, I've had so many failures over, over the years and stuff. And I think like people don't usually talk about that, but like, oh yeah, like these were the facts we had going in. This was going to work. This is why it's going to work. We had, you know, we had done some insights work and like things had like completely flopped. And we've, I think, you know, We've seen that in in history, whether you look at like the big one that comes to mind for me is like, remember 3D TVs? Everyone was like, this is the future. Like, oh my gosh, we're going to watch 3D TVs. Everyone's going to have their glasses. And like, this is amazing. I don't even want to think about how many of those things are in the landfill or in the recycling <laughs> bin. Like that was something that was like completely overlooked that, you know, ha- has happened. And so, but I also think like you had to go through that to, to kind of cross that off and go down that route to go, yeah. Okay. That was a innovation, a piece of innovation that we we all thought was going to work, and maybe they had 
I don't know how they would have gone out and like validated or tested that, but it didn't actually get us anywhere. Yeah, we actually, um, I think as, um, as marketers, particularly package goods marketers, we've done a lot better, even just in process, in mm-hmm. getting to that point faster, yeah. get to the learning, to the decision and move past it, mm-hmm. and then take the learnings from going through the process and apply it to the next thing. Mm-hmm. So we have, uh, and a lot of companies do now have um, stage gate processes to go through innovation, yeah. Yeah. where you literally go through the thinking in a staged way so that you don't get all the way to the end and be like, oh, we don't make any money. <laughs> or that was a terrible idea and we just wasted eight months of our lives. Yeah. You get there faster by going through these processes and you just be, are able to take the learnings along the way. Interesting. That idea of like structured innovation, I feel like something that isn't like talked about much like that. Just, just now, like, you know, we hear about innovation. You've kind of heard me talk about shiny object syndrome, that sort of thing. But like, just kind of when you broke it down like that, the, the, like applying a logic or, or a structure or a framework to innovation, like maybe that's the key. Yeah. I mean, innovation absolutely plays a role. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just about figuring out how does it fit within your overall mix? Yeah. There's a lot to think about there, but I, I know we only have so much time. So I want to switch gears again here. We've been talking a lot about innovation and, and you could still, this innovation could still be a topic as we move forward here, but what are you most excited about when it comes to marketing brands today? Like oh. as a marketer, there's, you've been through a lot over 20 years, you've launched things, you've worked across so many different kinds of categories uh, within within your industry, you 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 alluded to being like, hey, what, should we invest in this digital thing? Like, I feel like that's such a unique point of view. What gets you fired up? You know what? I'm really inspired these days about the number of brands that are like really pushing themselves to think differently. Mm-hmm. So this idea of risking and being not afraid to fail, mm-hmm. and digital has opened up the world to so many smaller brands that just are doing things differently. When you had to be able to launch a product via TV. It really limited the breadth of what you saw. And so there are so many of these up and coming brands out there that are bringing a really new perspective and they're not, not afraid to try things that haven't been tried before. So mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Um, I also love the, the transparency and connectivity the brands have today with their consumers. Yeah. So this idea of ideas can come from anywhere. They're not always generated in ivory towers or focus groups that there's this two-way dialogue that can happen between brands and consumers and that the, and the ideas that come from brand advocates get implemented. Mm-hmm. That never happened before. We never had that loop. Or when somebody um, calls us up to say that we did something wrong and that we could have done a better job, we actually have the ability not only to take the feedback and actually implement it, but actually to reach back out to them and let them know that we did that. Mm-hmm. So I, I love where this dialogue is going with um, consumers these days. Mm-hmm. Well, it allows them to kind of hold hold businesses more accountable for well, things. People want their voices to matter and they want to be heard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the thing that comes to mind w- with that is just lowering that barrier between, you know, consumers and brands have been closer than ever before right? Like with, with digital and with, with other things. And then, yeah, maybe, you know, the way the internet has kind of hyper-connected people and acts as like a megaphone, so to speak for consumers, right? Like before I think about like my parents, my dad, like he'll still write a letter to the editor, you know, like he'll still do that. And I'm like, that's nice dad. Whereas like, you know, now writing a letter to the editor could be like tweeting something and it gets picked up and like, boom, you have this thing like explode. Whereas like 
letter to the editor. Sure. Maybe some people cut it out. Maybe some people read it. Um, and so, yeah, I wonder if like this kind of like amplification of, of consumers voices has, has contributed to that as well. Well, and I think that it also talks to the importance of cultivating and being very humble as a brand yeah, and not putting out this, you know, persona that you know everything because mm-hmm. we make mistakes all brands make mistakes and yeah. the ability to be able to own up to it yeah. um, consumers respect that and so they need you need to be able to have cultivated a persona or a, a brand personality that allows for that dialogue because when you screw up which will happen you need to get the, the forgiveness and the the um the space to be able to one own up to it but also to not get vilified for it yeah Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to, I want to ask a separate question. This is, this is one of my most favorite questions that I get to ask on, on this podcast. Um, you know, you, you were definitely hearing your story about how you got into marketing. You were such a go-getter, like you with a phone book would be dangerous because you'd be a really great private investigator or a stalker to go find someone. <laughs> I, I always found like, you know, I, I dropped out of university. I actually never went to university for marketing or business. And, and the way that I've kind of learned everything is by, is by reading and listening to things. How do you stay up to date on business or marketing? Who are you following? What are you reading? What are you listening to? Probably going to be a very unsexy answer. I read a lot. I do read yeah. a lot. I get recommendations or I often go back to, to books. I've even like really great ones that I've read in past and reread. Yeah. One of my favorites that I keep going back to is good to great. Yeah. Uh, but there's a, I mean, there's a ton of really great business books out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, learn, you learn from everywhere. Yeah. So I do a ton of reading. Yeah. And again, the principles haven't really changed in mm-hmm. marketing at the core for the last yeah. 50, a hundred years. Yeah. So there, you can learn things that were written. I mean, Dale Carnegie's book was written almost a hundred years ago. Yeah. And it still has tons of nuggets to be applied today. I also listen to a bunch of podcasts. Yeah. I mean, the ones that I love are um, the guy rises, how I built this yeah. um, and under the influence. Yeah. Yeah. So, Terry O'Reilly under the influence is a great yeah. one. Yeah. 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 I, those are just, those are just fun. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I find it's, it's interesting. Like when I get asked, you know, people in my network, how'd you get into marketing? Like, what was kind of the thing? I think I, I cannot underscore how important it is to just constantly devour information and like relevant information, right. About marketing. So to your point, like, you know, there are things where I'll do something similar where I'll have read a book one, two, three, four years ago, something will come up in, in that's work related. And I'll be like, Oh yeah, there was something in that book. I'm going to go pull that book off the shelf, open it, reread that chapter and be like, okay, interesting. Like that's how I can apply that to that. And I just think like, yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm always looking for new things to read and new things to kind of devour whether I'll retain it or not. That's a whole nother question, but hopefully it's like, it gets indexed in some way that I can, I can use it in the future when the time is right. Yeah. And it can be a lot. I mean, I understand some of these books are hard slog reads Yeah, and you find great ones and you find ones that are like, okay, I'm not going to read that one again. Mm-hmm. I tend to alternate. I do like a book for me yeah, and then a business book and I yeah. kind of keep going back and forth. That's a good and system. Then, well, then I, then I get motivated to read something that's more work related. Yeah. Just been able to shut my, my mind off for a little bit. I mean, like I said, I have two young kids, so it's usually reading before bed. So it, it'll take me a couple months to get through something. Yeah, for sure. I also feel like there's just no shortage of good books out there. Like my reading list is ridiculous right now. I'm like, okay, I guess I'll finish this in the next decade. Like <laughs> to your point. Well, and my team does it as well, but they do a lot of audiobooks. 
So that's yeah. the other way to do it. I yeah. haven't gotten on the audiobook train yet. I yeah. still like the like the physical tactile book, yeah. but just most of the great ones are on audiobooks. Yeah, what I've done actually is like I'll do audiobooks and I'll buy a physical copy, so I'll listen to it first. And then if there's something there, I'll find the, like when I get the physical one in my hand, then I'll go like reread it. So it's like, I listen to it and then I read it. And then also that I I can actually have a bookshelf to say, like, I've read and listened to all these books as opposed to me just listening to things and being like, "Ah, I don't read books. (laughs) So maybe, maybe it's an interior decorating, selfish interior decorating thing as well. I don't know. Okay. Last question for you. What advice would you have for marketers that they should keep top of mind as they move forward in, in their careers. I think, you know, something that struck me that I didn't know about you before this conversation was like how scrappy and gritty you were to like go out and, and use the phone book to chase down HR people way back when, like, I don't know that, that just resonates a ton with me, but like, yeah, you've, you've been through a lot. You've seen a lot. Um, yeah. What would you say? I, I have a couple actually that I, I tend to um, share. One, I would say be broad. So don't specialize early in your career. Like I said, there was no digital marketing when I started out. Um, And by being a generalist, I was able to find the opportunities in every role and then just kind of keep bringing those things along. Mm -hmm. So being nimble and being ready to pivot based on the opportunities in front of you, I think is a big one. The second one would be to be very purposeful in your career. I made the mistake early on of waiting for my boss to manage my career. So waiting for them to give me the opportunities that allowed me to learn. And what I'll say is your path lies with you. So look for the opportunities, ask for the assignments where you can stretch. Just keep your eyes open to areas where you can learn things and not just wait for them to land in your lap because you're the only one. You're going to be the one that is most invested in your career and no one else will be putting in as much effort as you will. So be purposeful on how, like what you learn and how you get there. Uh, the other one that I found actually was a really good one for me. And I kind of learned this one by accident is don't be afraid to take a contract versus a permanent role. I know a lot of people will only look at permanent roles. I've had more contract roles than I've had permanent roles over my career. Wow. Uh, one is a lot less competition because a lot of people don't want to take contract roles. And yeah. with Matt leave being a year in Canada, you can get really great experience in, in a company in a year. Yeah. And often it will roll over, um, into something yeah. you never know what happened. I worked when I worked for ocean spray, it was on a contract. There's only three people in the marketing team. And then there was two back-to-back Matleys. So like the chance of you never know where things are going to lead. Yeah. The other thing I found really good about that is by being very purposeful, when you go into these roles, you can go in and say, here's what I want to get out of this role over the next year. Yeah. And so you go in with this most proactive mindset of, Here's my plan. Here's what I'm going to get. And then you just, you'll get more out of these opportunities because Mm -hmm. you can like wrap your head around what's actually possible. Um, And then the other one I would say (laughs) is there is no substitute for experience or time in seat. And I know that that can be a tough one for people of, Mm -hmm. I should be able to move up really fast, but there is something to be said for going through a business cycle and going through something a couple of times for it to really get in your head. And as much as you want to be a VP by the time you're 25, there's, there's something to be said for literally just being humble, uh, learning, failing, growing, making mistakes, and then learning from them. And you just need to go through the process in order to get all of those learnings. Mm -hmm. So when you try and skip it, 
you're really just losing out. So I would just say, be patient and be purposeful and look for the opportunities in front of you because they're there. Don't just keep focused on what is the, the next step. And maybe the last thing I'll say too is the thing that I've learned is often people will go after roles because of the sexiness of the brand. Hmm. And instead of looking at how much a role has to offer, like I said, I went uh, and one of my jobs was launching tolling on the Portman Bridge, which is the unsexiest of jobs. <laughs> but the government doesn't do marketing. And yeah. so I had I got to hire a team and a slew of agencies. I've got a great healthy budget um, to talk. I, I got to run my own show and I was a marketing manager. Yeah. Because I went after an opportunity that was just really needy on paper, but maybe didn't have the, the sexiest brand or company behind it. And I know mm -hmm. people want to go after and look at the Lululemons and the Aritzias and the big fancy, like there's a lot of great companies out there, but focus on the role, mm -hmm. not on the company. And it will lead you in the right direction 100% of the time. Yeah. And building that skill. I think one of the things that, that resonated with me from that is you know, you said, you talked about going through the cycles, going through the process. It's like, you need to build that scar tissue as well. Yeah. Right? Like of, of you, like falling down over and over again to realize like, ouch, it hurts when I fall down. And now I know what to avoid to not fall down because that hurt. Like the stove is hot. <laughs> it's exactly it. Yeah. I consider myself really fortunate. Um, one, I've been really lucky. I've worked for some really great companies and learned from a lot of really great people, mm -hmm. but I also made a ton of mistakes along the way. And luckily I made a lot of them really early and I learned from them all. My gosh, they were painful at the time. <laughs> they always are. But then you look, then you zoom out or like, as you, as you go on, you look yeah. back, you're like, yeah, that wasn't that bad. Like that stressed me out way back then, but like, that wasn't that bad. Yeah. <laughs> but that's part of the process. It's part of the process and you have to go through it. Yeah. I love that. Well, let's end it there. I want to thank you so much for, for joining me today. It was such a great conversation. I learned so much from you every time we chat. So I'm sure our listeners will as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, I hope to see you at some point soon. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I love talking about this stuff. So I appreciate you having me come and chat. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Charlie. For show notes, other episodes, and more content, check out rightmetric.co. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.